You are listening to Forward, a podcast of island readers and writers. This is your host, Taylor Mace. Joining me today is author, illustrator, and musician Stephen Costanza. He is the author of Vivaldi and the Visible Orchestra, as well as Mozart Finds a Melody and the illustrator of several other children's picture books. And his new book, King of Ragtime, The Story of Scott Joplin, is out September 14th. And it is just a incredible biography and a beautiful book. And I'm so excited to have Steve here to talk about it today. Well, thank you, Taylor. I'm I'm really uh, honored and so pleased to be able to chat with you. Now, Steve, can you share um, a little bit behind your, your inspiration for this book and Scott Joplin as your subject? Well, yeah, certainly. Um, You know, Taylor, I've always loved Scott Joplin's music, and I was first introduced to it as a kid um, way back in the 70s. I was a a youngster, and I hadn't even started taking piano lessons yet. But um, I just remember hearing um, Scott Joplin on the radio all of a sudden because it was the soundtrack to this. His music was the soundtrack to the movie The Sting. And uh, not long after that, my aunt had given me an album of Scott Joplin rags. And I was just, just like blown over by them. I, I thought that they were just a, like each one, like a little four minute long gem of, uh, of beautiful music that really kind of um, it was the first time I think that I ever heard music that could be, that could like traverse so many different emotions in such a short span of time, I guess is, is, is how I would put it, the way it affected me. Um, my dad and mom encouraged um, my brother and sister and I to take piano lessons. And at one point we were all taking piano lessons with the same teacher, um, um, including my father. So there were four people going to the piano teacher at one time. But, and so there was music in the house and my dad played the piano and, and we heard a lot of classical pieces like Bach that he would play, which were terrific. But when I heard Joplin on that album, I was hearing music that was just expressing things that, that, that just really deeply affected me and I hadn't really heard before. And again, that they were kind of like uh, little pop tunes too and that each one was approximately like maybe four, four minutes long, maybe some were a little shorter, some a little bit longer, but I just never, never uh, stopped uh, loving his music and, and I eventually started taking piano lessons and and incorporated learning Joplin into my repertoire of pieces that I would learn. In fact, I had a very sympathetic, sympathetic piano teacher who, um, who, who recognized that I liked ragtime, ragtime so much. And every week I'd have a lesson and bring in like a new Joplin rag that I had learned at home rather than like say, for example, Schubert <laughs> or, or something else that I, that I should have been practicing. <laughs> but um, she was really uh, very understanding, and, and um, I think that um, what she recognized, her name was um, Mrs. Field, was that uh, here was a kid that uh, really loved music, and um, maybe she knew that 
that, that loving piano so much and finding a hook that kept me practicing would turn into a love of, a lifelong love of music. And it did, it really did, because from Joplin, then I went on to like Mozart and I, and I, and I saw um, other kinds of music um, too. It just kind of blossomed, but, but, you know, at the root of it all is, is, is Scott Joplin. And, 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 and he's, he's, he's been in my life and a big part of my life for so long. And it's just an, an incredible thrill right now, Taylor, like to be able to finally uh, have this dream come true, which is to have the book, um, you know, finally published a project that I began to think about back in 2006. Um, um, but really didn't begin in earnest until like maybe 2015 and um yeah yeah it comes out in a couple of weeks and i'm just completely thrilled I'm, I'm still still um uh kind of in a state of disbelief <laughs> about it well it is in addition to just being just absolutely beautiful um it, it also weaves such uh detailed um story of Joplin in that time um, in, in the Jim Crow era. Can you um, just share a little bit about your, your research process and, and how, you, um, how you wove the narrative? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, initially I had wanted to do a book that spanned his entire life. Um, and, um, but as it turned out, um, as I began to work on the manuscript, it seemed like it was, uh, quite, quite long. And when I began to show the manuscript to, um, my agent and her assistant, we kind of agreed that perhaps maybe it was a good idea to maybe just keep it, keep the appeal to, to really young readers, um, who could see the evolution of this person from his early days up until like say his breakthrough moment, which as a young adult was this piece of music that he wrote called Maple Leaf Rag. So with that kind of as like the framework for my story, the research involved a lot of um, looking at photos, looking at photos of sharecroppers from that era, uh, just after the civil war, uh, Scott Joplin was was uh, born of the first uh, generation of African-Americans, born free after, um, or rather born after the Emancipation Proclamation. So he arrives on the scene at this incredibly pivotal moment. And um, it was my job to be, I think, as responsible and, and, and true to that era um, not just as a researcher, but as a, as a storyteller. And I was very concerned about having, approaching it with as much authenticity as I could in, in terms of what was life back then for formerly enslaved people. So for example, my research would look, would, would not only include looking at pictures in books and going online, and seeing the pictures taken, like say, right after the Civil War and in the very place where Joplin was born, um, Northeast Texas. But also reading a lot of books. I, I came across a number of 
fascinating, fascinating books um, on what life was like for African-Americans at that time and the kind of living that they tried to carve out on these um, farms and, and, and places where they were living and, and the trades and the, and, and the tools that they used and the work of their hands that they carried over from the slavery days and, and tried through enormous effort to create um, a life for themselves. And in many cases, you know, it was even more difficult than slavery, um, the life of, of sharecroppers. My, my, my biggest concern, uh, Taylor, was to be very truthful to, to that era, but at the same time, keep in mind too, that I wanted to make the book approachable to a kid and an adult, for example, who might not even know who Scott Joplin is, or, he, or have maybe have heard his music, but didn't know it was by this young African-American born in 1868 or 1867. And so, especially with uh, the early part of the book, I was really concerned with showing that things were hard, but I didn't want it to be like depressing. I, I wanted there to be throughout the entire book, a spirit of uh, hope and courage, if anything, because I feel that Joplin's story is one of enormous courage and enormous hope in the face of odds that I can't, I can't imagine. And, 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 you know, when, being born, as you said, you know, during the uh, Jim Crow era, and especially that area of the country, we're talking about Texas, not of the cowboy West, but this is a part of Texas that really is considered, <clears throat> excuse me, really is considered the, the deep South. And every day there were horrible stories, um, either uh, spread by word of mouth or accounts in newspapers, things like that, of uh, terrible, um, violent um, things that were happening and done to African-Americans. It was just amazing, um, just incredible. I, I, I still um, am in awe of uh, what Joplin and the generations before him and the generations that he was part of and what came after him, uh, what they were able to do in, in, in the face of uh, these, this kind of adversity. Um, so I found out right away too that, that this, is a, this was going to be a message of my book as well. But I had to, I had to try to balance the, um, the, certainly the injustices with this story of, of courage and, and, and done in a way that I hope would pay a lot of respect to not only Joplin, but to his generation and, and, and his roots. Um, because actually I should tell you, uh, you know, you, you, you probably uh, know this yourself being an artist, Taylor, you know, the expression um, imposter syndrome which, you know, strikes all of us, you know, we feel like, oh, we're not good enough, you know, I'm not up to this task. And I have to admit, there were, there were times as I got deeper into it, I began to feel like, um, it was almost like double imposter syndrome, because here I was feeling like, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe I'm not up to the task. And, 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 and the other part of it was like, and I'm definitely a white guy, you know, and here I am, you know, trying to tell the story of an African American, you know, like, uh, there were, there were times when I really, really self-doubted 
um, myself. And, and there's a part of it in me still that, that, that realizes that, you know, it, it, um, it, it could be very well affected by that. Um, but I, I, I realize too that, that, that mostly this book comes out of really two main things is that, that enormous respect for Joplin and his spirit and his courage and also the music. You know, I, I absolutely love the music and I could not do this book. And, you know, in terms of, I just hope it's not another example of white appropriation or, or, or uh, exploitation, you know, and, 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 but at the same time, I'm willing to accept that, that some people might feel that way. And, and I don't think I would disagree actually. But what I, what I, what I, I mean, it wasn't my intention, of course, but, but, but um, I'm hoping at least that my book is, is, is just one of, of, of several or, 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 or if I could put it this way, maybe my book, like a, just a, um, part of the mortar of the, of the conversation or, or a, a brick in the, um, on the bridge of, of the conversation of, of matters of, of race and, and, um, you know, equality and <laughs> all those things. Well, so. you know, there may be other um, biographies and, uh, you know, uh, of, of Scott Joplin, but what is, is so unique about yours, of course, is the, just the amazing artistry in the images. Um, can you, well, thank you speak to, um, you know, where you got the inspiration behind um, these images, you know, I know that there exists some photographs of him, but um, can you just talk a little bit about that process? Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, you're right. There are very few uh, documents, photographic uh, documents that, you know, show what Joplin looked like. And, um, and um, but I felt um, from the beginning too, Taylor, that um, ragtime is a music kind of strikes me as a kind of a patchwork of sorts um, where you have African influences coming together with Western musical influences. And when they come together, they create this kind of sound that is definitely a meeting of the, of the two. You know, you have syncopation and rhythm and the right hand wants to dance and, you know, fly and, and uh, like a bird. Whereas the left hand, um, is more march tempo, is more steady, is kind of like almost like the heartbeat. But when you have those two put together, it struck me as a kind of like a, a musical patchwork. So what I wanted to do with my artwork for the book was kind of approach the artwork with that philosophy that um, how can I approach this book and pay homage to kind of like a patchwork theme, you know? So... So I wanted to do something too, a little bit stylistically different from what I had done in the past with picture books. So you know what, I, I just started by getting a piece of paper and a couple of uh, like um, wax pastels, you know, kind of like crepons and um, just started making big shapes <laughs> uh, on any kind of paper I could grab my hand on. I, I, I wasn't thinking about anything other than just making these big patchworky shapes and see what evolved from there. And um, then, you know, I, I, 
I just um, had been doing that for a couple of weeks and had a lot of fun with it. And I thought, well, this is all great and good, but how in the world do you draw a character <laughs> that looks like anybody, you know, with like these um, um, very geometric, um, angular, and in some cases, curvilinear um, shapes that I guess, you know, did look like quilts. So I just started thinking of applying, like say for example, um, color and, uh, and design to render a character a lot more broadly than I had before. So I wasn't concerned really with big, with little details. I was just, you know, if I would render a face, I would just kind of like treat the face as a big shape. And then just a few little details for like the eyes and nose and things like that. Same with the clothes and, and then began to see how that could spread out to a way of approaching a landscape or, or how to draw a train, you know? Um, so it was the idea of trying to create something that would pay homage to patchwork, even if, even if it wasn't really apparent to the reader. I think a lot of illustrators try to find ways to keep themselves engaged or, or they try to approach the work in a really honest way, you know, like, or, or, in, a, or in a way that'll really engage them, which hopefully, you know, can help it um, reel in the viewer too, you know, um, so. What? I don't know if that is your well, question. No. Oh, it absolutely. <laughs> well, the 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 illustrations are are absolutely beautiful. Uh, what medium did you use, or do you use in your artwork? Well, you know, I used a lot of. Um, it's this really great um, paint, Taylor called acrylic gouache, and um, uh, it it very much behaves like um, gouache paint, which. Um, is a uh, watercolor, but an opaque watercolor. A lot of illustrators will use um, gouache because it reproduces so well. Um, and um, it has a high concentration of, of pigment in the paint itself, which, um, which uh, really lends a kind of beautiful matte surface, which is really ideal for um, matte surface of the final art, which is really ideal for the uh, reproduction and the scanning of the art. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's a kind of paint called acrylic gouache, which has those properties of gouache, but it's also like acrylic paint in that once it dries, it's, it's on there for good. So if you wanna paint over it, you won't upset the layers that are underneath it, um, mm. which happens like with traditional gouache. Um, in traditional gouache, you have layers that can become reactivated if they get wet. Whereas with acrylic wash, once it's dry, that one layer, it's dry, it's good. So you can paint over it, you can leave it alone, you can draw on top of it. So I used that primarily and I used um, some dry media here and there like colored pencils and wax pastels. Um, and then in some areas too, um, in keeping with the patchwork theme, um, I used a lot of collage. Um, and, and not as much as I would have liked to. In fact, um, I can see um, this book as um, a beginning of, of, of doing more and more collage because I had a lot of fun with it. It was, it was so much fun. In fact, there are a number of paintings in the book that look one way, but I can tell you the layers underneath look very, very different. 
that would be cover- easy to see that process. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, they can probably do it, right? Because I think they, you know, of course they've been able to x-ray, you know, like famous masters yeah. paintings, you know, from the, and so like, say, for example, the cover of uh, the book, you'll see like um, amidst all of those like fuchsias and purples and, and pinks like that of the cover, every now and then there's like a little um, strip of like um, music that's kind of like sepia toned and it has some musical notes on it. Um, it looks as if I just cut those little snips out and put them on. But actually, those little snips were the entire background <laughs> of the painting at one time. And actually, um, uh, my editor and I looked at it and we thought, oh, well, it's really not working. We need more of a pop. So I painted over most of it with the acrylic wash and left only a few really? of those snips. <laughs> yeah. wow. you, you started out in graphic design. Um, what caused the shift to illustrating children's books? Well, you know, Taylor, I, I um, had always been illustrating, I guess, um, more or less for like such a long time, if only just because I thought, well, yeah, I can, I can, I can draw pretty well. It's probably what I can do better than anything else. And so I would just like sometimes think about, well, maybe I'll be an illustrator. And this was after college. I, I went to college for just a couple of years and wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life. You know, I was like um, also doing a lot of music at the time. And, um, but I needed to work. And so, although, you know, I draw in my spare time, I would find jobs in graphic design. And because, you know, they, they just seem to be, be available uh, much more easily than like be a staff illustrator, say, for example. So, um, and with graphic design, um, it was actually a lot of fun. I, I learned a lot about um, the computer um, and uh, how to use the computer for design and, 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 and things like that. But, you know, over the years, I had one graphic design job after the next and designing T-shirts, you know, and uh, um, uh, silkscreen graphics that were printed on T-shirts and um, or sometimes like offset printing like brochures, things like this. But all through those years, I, I, I still held on to the drawing because I knew that those were really, drawing was really my greatest strength. And, and I had here and there over the years picked up a few freelance illustration jobs. Um, and then ultimately I, while still having a graphic design job, I got represented by an agent who handled illustration work. And so he started bringing in some illustration for me on a regular basis, um, mostly editorial work and mostly, you know, read by adult readers. But he also was doing more and more work at the time in children's publishing. And, you know, I really became interested, I think, in doing children's books, Taylor, because I found that my style of drawing lent itself well to the market. And I was beginning to look more and more at books back then as I was getting interested in it and seeing that, wow, this is just fascinating. I really think that my style could fit in perhaps, you know, I had no idea if it would or not, but I just kind of started to feel a real affinity for it that I hadn't felt before. 
And I think that was also coupled with the fact that when I um, was in college, I really fell in love with film and just loved, um, I was going to school in Philadelphia and um, there was a, uh, at the time, there was a art, art house, like movie theater, you know, that would show like old, old timey films, but like they would show like the silence all the way up to like the art house films coming from, you know, all over the world um, up to the current day, you know? And so I was just like, wow, film is amazing. It's just this inc incredible medium. And um, when I began to look at picture books, I began to see them as kind of like mini films. So my interest was piqued not only because I thought, wow, I, my style might be appropriate for this, but I thought that, well, here's a chance to be a director of your own film, you know, um, where you can control the lighting and, and the design and the, and the um, you know, the turning of the pages is very much, um, uh, I think, like the uh, pacing that you would find in a film. I've never um, heard it described that way. That's, I, I love that. I've never heard that. You know, it, it, it's really interesting. I, I, I'm amazed at how many filmmakers um, we'll use uh, storyboards in the same way a lot of us uh, illustrators and writers will use storyboards to plot out the entire the entire um, the entire book. Um, and um, yeah, I've, I remember seeing some old storyboards by, like, say, Alfred Hitchcock for like the birds and things like this. And and his philosophy was, among other things, to you relate the um, emotional impact of the story or any particular point in the story to what appears on the screen. So for example, and he would use music terminology too, like say for example, so there's like this huge emotional moment, like a close-up might signify that, or that could be the close-up to him was kind of like the trumpet sound. Whereas maybe like say a, a different kind of shot from above or like a, uh, a long shot, like two characters in the distance could be a lot, a lot quieter, say for example. But, but um, yeah, going to see those, those movies um, at that theater back time was, was really transformative too, because I began to see um, images that I loved seeing, but they were, they were moving. And, you know, that theater would show like, old timey animations um, that were done on these huge machines and several layers of glass, you know, that they used to create these amazing 3D effects. But we're talking about like in the thirties, long before CGI and stuff like that. Um, so that kind of, um, the kind of uh, way of, 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 of telling a story, I think, um, um, kind of, you know, fascinated me. And, and, and to this day, I still, pay homage to my love of um, film. And, and in some cases I might even quote a shot from one of my favorite films, you know, in, 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 in the book, in a book that I'm working on, you know, or I, or I think about it and, and um, can't help but escape its influence. Are there any surprises like that in this one? <laughs> Actually, yes, there, there is. Um, um, there's a scene um, towards the end of the book when Scott Joplin is in Chicago and it's 1893. And for the first time, um, or maybe one of the first times, he's seeing 
and hearing this music that's being played that um, really um, uh, like just um, captures his, his spirit. He um, has been playing as an itinerant musician and, um, but he goes through the, so he's been like traveling up and down the Mississippi Valley and playing in like saloons and honky tonks and things like this. But then when he goes to Chicago, he sees and hears mostly, I, I think, African-American musicians like himself who were playing, although they weren't allowed to play in the fairgrounds proper, they were playing on the outskirts of the fair but this new kind of music that incorporated the popular songs of the day with improvisation and, and uh, a kind of rhythmic energy that wasn't heard before. And it just was like a huge hit at, at the Chicago World's Fair. It was like the first time this music was being exposed to uh, a large white audience, basically. So anyway, but Scott Joplin is seeing that, wow, there's like, there's like a real appetite for this. So there's a scene where he's standing in the midst of the fairground and it's at night and the lights of the fair in the background. But this was also the Chicago World's Fair uh, tale where the um, Ferris wheel, the, the world's very first Ferris wheel was debuted. So mm -hmm. I, have, I have a picture. I, I thought it might be neat to show Joplin just kind of like with his eyes closed, maybe just hearing all this music and wondering, oh my gosh, I've just got to do something with this. So I put the Ferris wheel right behind his head to kind of um, uh, underline the text, which says something to the effect, um, what was he going to do with all that music buzzing around in his brain, you know? Well, <laughs> speaking of Alfred Hitchcock, there's a scene in um, Strangers on a Train, one of his films, that does happen at a fairground. And one of the characters, a brief shot, um, is is um, is is photographed from from below. So you're kind of like looking up at him, and the Ferris wheel is kind of like rotating behind his head. It's a very dynamic shot um, in *Strangers on a Train*. And so, yeah, I never I never forgot that, and 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 um, I knew that I'd probably end up incorporating that into some book. And here was the perfect opportunity. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Steve, for for sharing uh, about uh, King of Ragtime, the story of Scott Joplin. Um, it is out September 14th. We're just so excited to be working with Steve next spring uh, for a number of school visits around this book using um, writing, art, and music. And it's just a wonderful uh, book to to be the catalyst for for so many different uh, uh, learning opportunities. So thank you for creating this book and and that has already received starred reviews from Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and uh, I'm sure many others. Um, and so we're just so uh, excited for for this to come out and for the world to see it. So thank you for joining me, Steve, today. Well, you're very welcome, Taylor, and thank you so much for for having me on. It really is a I really just loved it and, and um, an honor for me too. For more about Island Readers and Writers programs, visit www.islandreadersandwriters.org.